Hi everyone and welcome to Hit the Apex this week. It's the Russian Grand Prix. We've got six races to go in the championship, but it almost seems a little bit on the side this week considering what else is going on in the world of sport, particularly if you're here in Australia and in Melbourne with uh, two lots of footy finals. So we'll get to that a bit later. You might as well rename it Hit the Post this week because we'll be talking probably more footy anyway on this podcast, but we've still got the Russian Grand Prix on to to preview. So as always, I'm uh, I'm not Baden, I'm Jawad, joined by Baden, getting the wires a bit crossed already, but yeah, here we are. Having an out-of-body experience here, are we? Yeah, I don't know. I think it's just the sunshine. Shine. I'm so um, glad to see it after a long, dreary winter. But anyway, um, let's do the F1 first. We've got the Russian Grand Prix on this weekend. It moves back to its uh, slot later in the season. And, you know, it's hard to believe that we've only got six races to go. And given that the championship is not as delicately poised as we had hoped it to be, um, it's a 40-point lead for Lewis Hamilton over Sebastian Vettel, you might as well say that Brit's already got one hand on the trophy. At this point, it's pretty similar to last year where it went for all to play for after the mid-season break to all over in two or three races. And we did say it at Singapore that it was now or never, but it really is. This this coming uh, two weekends, you could say, back-to-back with Japan, um, Ferrari doesn't win either of them. They really probably have to win both. But if Hamilton wins this weekend, that essentially is it. And Ferrari probably best served turning its attention towards 2019 as sad as it would be to admit it's come around that quickly yeah exactly as you say that given all the hype going into the mid-season break and then coming out of it Belgium at least sort of reminded us that it could be a two-horse race but since then it's sort of just petered away into the hands of Mercedes and we come to a race now which Mercedes have had a stranglehold upon since 2014 when the Russian Grand Prix joined the calendar and then Lewis Hamilton's won two of those and of course we had Nico Rosberg and Valtteri Bottas uh, take victory as well last year. Um, if Hamilton wins this race he can finish P2 in the five remaining races after that and still win the title um, pending whatever wherever Sebastian Vettel finishes so it is all for Ferrari to play for as you say this weekend and now we've got another back-to-back there's been so many double headers this year, so you know we. I think we're into the final one, hopefully, um, for this year. But yeah, Japan and Russia this weekend are going to be pretty crucial. And you'd think on paper, again, we say on paper that Ferrari could be the stronger team here and in Japan, of course, as well, where the chassis really comes into its own. But given all the errors that they've made, you know, and all the mistakes that have. Uh, come through out the season um it looks like they're going to call it's going to cost them another title yeah we'll see friday and saturday they really do look like the team to beat that long run pace but hamilton just switches it on when it does count there whether it's q3 or on race day ferrari just uh, choking that they're leading comfortably and for whatever reason again we mention every week it seems um blinking first and really um Harries them, I guess, into um, struggling on worn sets of tyres later in the race, and Hamilton managing it so well. He just, they're really just um, there to be devoured the Ferraris, and it's a something they just don't learn from. Last year we thought they'd gotten over it coming into 2018, but they've just regressed into those old habits. And you think Russia last year, it looked like Ferrari had a good chance of winning, but Bottas really managed those tyres well, and that was his ultimately his debut victory. Yeah, that was too, and Vettel was runner-up to Bottas twi- on two occasions, even in Austria last year, and yeah, I guess if the race was a bit a couple of laps longer, you would have reckoned that um, Bottas would have been swallowed up by Vettel, but quickly, while you brought up the fact of the tyres as well, it's interesting to note that, again, Ferrari have decided to max out on the softest compound tyre, being the hypersoft in this instance for Sebastian's Vettel, uh, Sebastian Vettel's side of the garage, and that's what caught him out in Singapore and in Monza too, that the fact that they didn't have enough of the, uh, let's call it the hard tyre or whatever, or the medium tyre that they had allocated to them, um, and Mercedes were able to use that in the race and really capitalise because Ferrari only brought one set for the whole weekend. They couldn't really get any practice running out of it given that that's their sole set and they've made the same decision for the next race in Japan as well not bringing enough of those uh, harder compound tyres to at least have a bit of a run in practice on so again are they going to be caught short when it comes to the race strategy? They've gone all in really it's going to go one way or another there's not really going to be any kind of middle ground you can see there and they're at that point where 
essentially they have nothing to lose. They'll look like absolute magicians if it comes off, but Mercedes has really upped its game the last few races, and just on that strategic front, they, they seem bulletproof. So Ferrari, the first time they see Mercedes look like trying something alternative, they'll they'll go in and take the, the first option, and that often really seems to be uh, lights out, whether it's a lap 10, lap 15, there's no coming back from it, and really feels like we're in this... Uh, Vortex discussing the same predictable plot every week at the moment. Basically, yeah, it's the case. But um, given that Russia in the past has been a circuit where tyre degradation has been non-existent and every year we say they've got to bring the softest possible tyre, this year they've gone for the hyper-soft tyre, yet those tyres still this year haven't really had a lot of degradation. So we could still see a one-stop strategy utilised, but... If in the position, I really want to see Ferrari get a bit aggressive and say, well, yeah, if we don't have the hard tyre or whatever, medium in this instance, why don't we just try and win the race by using Hypersoft, you know? And as you say, they've got nothing to lose given the situation they're in. But at the same time, it feels like they're going to be conservative as always. It just seems ingrained in the, the culture and that idea with Vettel perhaps calling the shots from the cockpit, whether he's stepped in here and just said, right, I'm prepared to sacrifice the rest of my championship here to, to make it work, and he's just um, taken that executive action, you could say. Just something has to be done, and at this stage, really, um, you've got to say that uh, it's fairly likely it's not going to come off, so probably in the off-season they've got to work towards it. But for now, Hypersofts, you know, earlier in the year they, they tended to make them work, but for whatever reason... Ever since Vettel at Germany, um, they've just seemed really as though they've been uncertain of themselves every weekend. A little bit of bad luck with the weather in there, but ultimately just um, being outplayed in every department by Mercedes. And Mercedes really swinging each way with tyre selections there. And they tend to manage the rubber a lot better than they were, again, themselves in the earlier races. Yet Ferrari still have the better car and they still can't win. It's just... You know, it's hard to put two and two together, but it's the case. It's Ferrari. They're just, they seem to make a hash of it every time. So that's what the picture looks like at the front. Um, going over to Bottas, as we just talked about him before, he won this race last year, and he's typically been strong here in the past, even back when he was with Williams. But, you know, he was, he's been winless so far this season. And given that Hamilton, I guess, is in the position he is, even though Hamilton said that he's still got to come to every race aiming to win it, you know, would Mercedes be in the sort of mindset, oh, you know, well, we could give Bottas a race win this weekend, you know, if they're in that position too, given what they what happened to him in Hungary and also in Germany. Um, you know, it'd be nice to give him a bit of a reward for what he's done this season. And I guess for his confidence as well. I mean, ever since the whole wingman incident, um, he has been a little down on confidence as well. You could see he's been a bit nowhere. I mean, even Kimi Raikkonen's been stronger than Bottas in this uh, middle part or middle to latter part of the season. You can't see Mercedes outright handing it to Bottas, but if Hamilton, for whatever reason, has one of those rare weekends where he's off his game... um, He'll be quite content not to um, put his nose in anywhere where it's going to cause a, a collision like last year a few times. He probably got caught out there and, you know, what happened at Mexico, that collision he had. He still clinched a title there, but fall, uh, falling way down the field. So I think Hamilton will be very composed this point out. He knows he's really got that margin there. And Ferrari, even with a, a Bottas leading, they'll probably still find a way to to be ambivalent about it when they... They need to be covering, I guess, uh, Hamilton and the bigger picture of um, wherever he might be. They might be looking, oh, the victory's there instead of we might just take some points away from Hamilton. They've got to start with something. But at this point, it seems as though whatever the the grid might be, they'll start first and second. Hamilton's fourth, there we say. And yet, for whatever reason, strategy time, switcheroo, and Hamilton's off in the the sunset. It just seems very uncanny that um, they have an advantage and they just find a way to gift it to Mercedes. Yeah, their undercuts always never seem to work, as we've seen in the past few races. And Russia, too, is not a track that really promotes overtaking, you could say, as well. It's very hard. And I guess to get in front of someone, they're going to have to look at strategy. And we only saw that last year with Vettel and Bottas, the fact that Vettel just, you know, he was so much quicker than 
um, the Mercedes, but couldn't find his way past. So, you know, it's going to be more of that this year. So emphasis will be there on qualifying too. And the reason I say Bottas could be an outsider this weekend is because 2014, the very first race, he could have been on pole position in a Williams if he didn't um, stuff up the final co- his exit from the final corner. So, you know, it's just something about this track that suits Bottas. And even Raikkonen has been typically strong here as well. But just don't let him get close to Bottas because we know what's happened a couple of years ago between those two um, coming together. But you get the feeling that given that Vettel's title aspirations are on the line this weekend as they are every single race, that if in if needed, they're going to use... Ferrari are going to use uh, Raikkonen for Vettel to, as a scapegoat, whatever you want. So, yeah, it's it, it all comes down to what happens with those top four positions with those top four guys. Has to be remembered, though, Raikkonen, uh, man unchained since that announcement that he's um, being replaced by Leclerc, excuse me, you'd have to wonder that at this point he might go against the, the protocol and just get his elbows out. We saw at Singapore he wasn't really a factor, but... That was across the board. Ferrari just couldn't get it together. And, and you'd think based on what he did show last year, he was very competitive and Ferrari did um, sacrifice him for Vettel's betterment and that never eventuated. So for Raikkonen, you never know. If he's looking legitimately um, more competitive, then stranger things have happened and maybe he does have the mindset he's got nothing to lose. He might even take a risk in diving into a corner because he's that desperate to get really realistically the final victory of his career which we keep harping on about and really we got so close to at Italy and didn't come to pass so if he's got it there on the the taking you wouldn't blame him for being a bit selfish yeah free agent as it were but um at the same time does he sacrificed himself for his great mate Sebastian Vettel, of course. We know they're friends, and given that the title probably means a lot more to Ferrari, I guess, you know, up until now, Kimi's been the team player and everything, and, you know, placid as he is, could he just uh, put it on um, put it on the line again to please the team and to please his teammates? So that'll be the key thing to look out for. So, yeah, between Ferrari and Mercedes, you've got to say that that's the the race win locked out. Red Bull look like they're probably going to be fighting themselves again this weekend, fighting reliability perhaps between Daniel Ricciardo and Max Verstappen. It was Even though it was only sixth, it was nice to see Ricciardo finish a race last time out. And dare we say it, he might not even race this weekend. Um, he might decide to fly to Melbourne and uh, watch the grand final, given his beloved West Coast uh, in, the, in the top. Uh, spot there so yeah it'll be interesting to see not that I, I doubt that's going to happen Danny Kvyat parachuted back in the scene where his career effectively ended about three two years ago yeah four Red Bulls so that would be um, pretty good for Kvyat to do that but yeah you know Red Bull they're just going to be fighting themselves and you know I guess it's just about personal pride as well for Ricardo as it is with Raikkonen given that he's on the out um, of the team by the end of the year talk about the c-spec or going back to the b-spec renault engine and whatnot you know it's yeah it sort of doesn't mean anything given that red bull as well was separating from renault at the end of the year and going to honda next year yeah just marking time for for all parties there and it's a shame the way that when you think back to where it started for ricardo with um red bull and we did think he was going to be that next nucleus for the the title but then max verstappen came along and then just poor fortune this year is a damn script for him to go out and then for Red Bull itself with Renault the the heights of four or five years ago when they were just looking absolutely untouchable and Renault pretty um, jilted they never got the credit they deserved so it's fair enough the the way the sourness has probably overshadowed what's been an extremely successful collaboration. Yeah it seems like uh Seems like a really long time ago now when you think about it, when Red Bull were in that position. So, you know, a a completely different era. So even though it's, as you say, only four or five years ago. So, yeah, it really has, Mercedes have really owned the sport over the last four or five years. And, um, yeah, the Red Bull dynasty that was just doesn't seem to exist um, when you look back. But, yeah, anyway, moving it on. And in the midfield, you should have your usual shenanigans between Renault, Haas and Force India as well. Um, Haas, of course, they're going to be contesting that disqualification from the Italian Grand Prix as well. But, you know, they had a pretty shocking weekend out in Singapore with none of their cars finishing in the points. Renault were in the points. Force India as well. 
Ocon and Perez not allowed to race according to the team given the clash that happened on the first lap in Singapore. So how does that affect team the team mentality and the morale of the drivers? Ocon, of course, fighting for his future in F1, but we're hearing perhaps, you know, talks with Williams are progressing. So perhaps he could end up there, as I've said, pretty much since he had no hope of going to McLaren and to Renault. So, yeah, it's good. Force India is going to be an interesting one to watch. But, you know, they've been strong here in the past and points could be still on the cards for them. Yeah, really just rechlorating those points that were wiped mid-season with the, the notional rebirth, even though barely anything's changed on the, the surface. And it's just a shame that after that stern talking to they'd had after a few coming together um, last season and then wasn't it this year as well at Azerbaijan did they have a friendly fire was it the first lap that yeah they... yeah and uh, they went on to finish on the podium still did Perez so so when you think about it like it's just come to this two quality races and uh, it has to be say the the blame as well when you see what went on for Perez after that with Sorotkin he seemed to have the red mist about him and for Ocon <laughs> he's just a it just exacerbates what's um, been a fraught situation for him when he's continued that upswing, but it looks like his immediate future in the sport's very bleak. Yeah, well, up until Brazil last year, he didn't have a DNF to his name since that debut with Manor a couple of years ago. Yet, since that uh, Brazil DNF, every other DNF he's had have all been on the first lap as well, so he gets caught up in some awful little situations there, and to be caught up with your teammate as well, I think it's the worst thing, and given the history between these two guys, going back to Belgium, Belgium last year it's just you know they're probably hoping that next year it's going to be a lot more calmer without between between without the tension between the two there but you know it's all I guess part of the game is uh you know you got to beat your teammate and you know some people go a bit too far with it yeah it just seems as though um they need to know their place and maybe Perez um acting as though he's some sort of benefactor the way that he um intervened there with that um forced administration to get things rolling I don't know if that one's really gone to his head but you never know if it could affect his own negotiations since he still hasn't confirmed his own destination for 2019 so there's still a a bit to play out there yeah exactly I didn't really think that he'd be going anywhere else uh, given that Ocon's and the outer from Force India so it should be Perez that takes that second seat there but um, moving it on McLaren and Williams continue to struggle and I guess on a high speed track like Russia as well expect them not really to be in there Fernando Alonso could jag some points out as always but you know at the same time he could just retire two or three laps into the race and given that Sergei Sorotkin's home track as well you'd hope that you know he would be able to put on a decent show for his home fans but you know given where Williams are at the moment it seems unlikely Oh, I love the Putin boost there just to please the, the local leader there. Not many people will be familiar with him, but I'm, I'm sure that there'll be some strings pulled to make sure that um, the local man has some chance at least of being being in the action at reverse some point. Gri- reverse grid to put uh, Sorotkin on pole if he qualifies last. Oh, you know, stranger things have happened when you've got that um, vested interest in a a local talent is suddenly a bit of an outlier result and you wonder how it's happened. Maybe a little bit of a, a push here or there from certain powers that be. And also, um, the grand, they've named a grandstand after him too. Ironically enough, that was the Danny Kvyat grandstand a year ago when he was still racing. So they've just taken his picture off and put the other driver's picture on there but speaking of Danny Kvyat it could be likely that this weekend it's announced that he will be returning to Toro Rosso next year which you know we already talked about last week it's just uh yeah you but you all know how we feel about that you know he is a talented young driver and it was sad to see him treated the way he was by Red Bull but the fact that you know they've backpedaled again is just like well you know their relevance is just quickly diminishing basically so that's all i can say about that yeah the way that last year when they had to return to someone from eight years earlier and then all the talk this year about boemi and and all the types and Vern even for a time there and then you've got a tictum who continues to disgrace himself as we'll touch on imminently they they really have probably floated away a long way from the the initial remit that toro Rosso was meant to serve apart from Sebastian Vettel and to an extent Max Verstappen even though he was bought in 
externally. Um, they're the only two that really have uh, vindicated the program. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> more on Tictum, as you say, a bit later. But yeah, we'll see whether that announcement is made or not, um, given that it is the Russian Grand Prix weekend. And quickly... Uh, FP1 outings for, I guess, I think Artem Markalov will be in the Renault. We'll have Antonio Giovinazzi in the Sauber, of course. More on him in a sec. And, of course, Lando Norris jumping into the McLaren as well. So, quite a few new faces on the grid. And we'll go into the digest straight away now as well. And the big news to come out over the past few days has been that Antonio Giovinazzi will be with Sauber next year as a race driver. He replaces Marcus Ericsson, who has been demoted, if you will, to the role of third driver and brand ambassador. So I guess a way of keeping his investors happy as well was to keep him part of the team, but as a third driver. And very magnanimous about it. He did handle it very cordially. It wasn't really an outburst you've seen in the past. These drivers who act like they've got by default a lifetime drive and he probably knows his place and he's, he's probably been done no harm by holding a candle to Charles Leclerc and we know his future so you can see that he's potentially got a, a future himself to get back on to the grid and um, compared to where he was when he debuted with Caterham no one thought that he'd amount to anything so he's certainly far from the worst driver I've seen in the last decade or so. Yeah and he's a exactly and he has scored points for Sauber on occasion as well and uh, in the early part of the year he was matching Leclerc here and there but then you know once the uh, youngster came into his own then he sort of took off but yeah Ericsson not a bad guy either so you know not wouldn't be good if he dropped off the grid altogether but to see him in that third driver role still pretty good but for Giovinazzi I guess you know another Ferrari driver um, finds himself on the grid and then of course first Italian driver since 2011 to to be on the F1 grid we sort of forgot what it was like having an Italian driver given we had Tony Liuzzi and Jano Trulli on the grid together previously but also for Alfa Romeo as a brand you know being represented by an Italian driver I think that's going to be pretty significant too. And you'd hope for Giovinazzi earlier on in the season when we go to a Australia at least he, he raced at China as well and that was a few uh, little disastrous crashes he had there into the, the final turn but at least he got that taste of it in 2017 so whether that means he's got a little bit of a head start there but of course he's had a pretty lean year 2018 hasn't done much racing so you wonder if he will be a little bit rusty nevertheless at his age it's just good to to see that he's been given that opportunity rather than probably another year in the wilderness and he would have missed the boat yeah exactly i think he did a bit of uh, endurance racing uh for a ferrari gt team and of course the simulator work as well for ferrari throughout the year in the formula one team so yeah it's really it's really we don't think about it much given that we've got this season still to play out but next year is going to be interesting with all the changes across the grid and not just in the midfield but with some of those big drivers as well Daniel Ricciardo certainly a big mover in that and then all the other little pieces Kimi Raikkonen and Charles Leclerc moving up it's going to be really exciting to see. I think it's brought more to the forefront by the way this championship's petered out the last few races you just want it to roll on for yeah, 2019. Let's get ready to let's get ready for winter testing already for next year and see everyone in their new gear and also the new liveries on the cars let's let's fast forward to february already but anyway a lot more to play out throughout the year anyway in the world of motorsport and f1 as well um dan tictum he lost the plot over the weekend at the f3 or as i've titled him tan dictum yeah well whatever you want to call him it's just uh yeah losing the plot more or less and hard to believe that he's still on red bull's books as a potential driver of the future the only reason he wasn't drafted into Toro Rosso for next year is because he hasn't qualified for a super license yet. But Because um, he did something a few years ago that probably wasn't the most sporting. No, not at all. And uh, on that basis, he shouldn't be even given that chance, I guess, given that how ruthless Red Bull have been about other drivers. But um, I guess that's sort of the side story in the fact that it was Mick Schumacher who won his fifth straight Formula 3 race over the weekend um, and has a stranglehold on that championship now. And I guess why Tictum lost the plot was all the accusing that he did towards Schumacher about, you know, car being illegal or some cheating going on and relating back to his name as well and the presence that his name brings. So, you know... 
Hmm, this idea that Prem has suddenly got a hundred percent focus on Schumacher when they've got considerable uh, roster of drivers there ticked him distinct suddenly because he won that race and he's been on a roll ever since at, at Belgium. There, there's some sort of bum steer being given to him and making the point of uh, mentioning that he's not complaining at all and then going on to um, have quite a vitriolic rant. It just uh, it's sour grapes from him and coupled with that history he's had a few years ago doesn't fill anyone with much confidence about his his future and probably Red Bull then good luck to them if they're still keen on him in the next year or so but if he doesn't get that title who knows if that'll ever call of course he'll blame uh, the car and everything for it and say that um, Schumacher cheated like his father or something like that not that I'm implying that but yeah that's something that Tickton would say for sure but yeah no such a good run of form for Mick Schumacher and of course fully expecting him next season to move up to Formula 2 at least, you know, and spend a couple of years there, perhaps win the title, and then 2021 F1 should be on the horizon. Now, who knows, if he wins the F2 title, he'll probably be forced into F1 since they have that stupid rule where yeah, you can't well, defend he, the title. If he wins the title in his first year as a rookie, that would be quite um, something. Of course, George Russell looks set to do that this year um, if Lando Norris can't find a way to stop him. But yeah, it would be great to see for young Mick. So, you know, we've been quietly watching his uh, progress over the past few years and it's good to see that he's not being rushed into anything he's making his way up the ladder and you know in the beginning we didn't see this sort of form from him so it's just something that's coming naturally um, through and you know by the time he does get to F1 hopefully you know he'll be in that position where he can challenge the uh, status quo drivers where we expect guys like Gasly, Leclerc and all that to be at the top of the um, top of F1. Ocon hopefully too. He's found his feet really since that victory it just seems as though the rest is falling into place now just that belief that he can do it and you've seen that drive on the weekend that um, the red ball ring was in the wet and he had some pretty masterful control of the car which is quite reminiscent of his father so there's some really striking resemblances there that um, can be counted on if he's given that chance you just never know um, what he's capable of and you've got to remember as well I think we mentioned last edition that he's um, his cousin there in um, David Schumacher, he's also very handy and probably has escaped the limelight, but there's a good chance in the next two or three years we'll have multiple Schumachers on the grid once more. Yeah, and hopefully it's not the same as uh, Ralph and Michael where um, David could actually be a bit more competitive than his old man was. So, yeah, that would be good to see. Moving it on... um, Sebastian Buemi, you brought him up just before, he's confirmed his future in Formula E, so there was a bit of talk about him perhaps filling in in Toro Rosso next year, coming back to F1, but he's committed his future to FE with um, Nissan, who've, uh, I guess Renault have rebranded themselves as Nissan for the next season, so, you know, he's going to be there, and one thing I'm really disappointed about is that, you know, his teammate's going to be Alexander Albon, and of course, He's a terrible driver. How I'm, dare they select him? No, not in that. <laughs> disappointed, not in that sense. I'm disappointed that F1 have let another good driver like Albon go to Formula E. And Albon, of course, we know his story. He didn't even have a contract for F2 this year, yet he came out. He won a couple of races. Um, he was binned from the Toro Rosso, or from the Red Bull Junior program as well a couple of years ago. So they've been him, yet they have a complete hack like Tictum on board. You know, that just tells you something about Helmet Marco these days. So, yeah. you know, Bohemi and Albon will be a formidable duo at Nissan for Formula E, but, you know, Albon in an F1 car would be so much better. I guess it does speak to Formula E's growing stature, the, these considerations even from recycled talents have come a lot more into that consideration in the last uh, 12 to 18 months and initially where it was really the the reject shop and now you're seeing legitimate contention from someone who might win a title there they've got a chance to reignite their career and you hope for Albon at this younger age that if he goes in and 
dominates from the outset that he, he might turn some heads immediately and if it's not Red Bull again wanting to welcome him back into the, the family then someone else will be pretty keen on him yeah I hope so that Red Bull don't get his their hands on him again this time so that'll be good to see in Formula E I think not too far from starting again for its new season with those new era cars so Miami Grand Prix the vote on that race has been deferred again by the council. Their deadline's been passed and there's been no decision. So it looks like we, we might have to wait from two to ten years for the, them. The, they'll announce when the deadline's over and they've come to the decision in 2030. In, in 2030. Time for the race to be ten years afterwards. Yeah, so, you know, we might be waiting until, you know, another two decades before this race happens. But I'm sure Chase Carey and Liberty Media will be keen to still make it happen. Very symptomatic, though, of the way that F1 seems to deal with America. Very few and far between cases of having it work and when it does it's only ever a short to medium term proposition as we saw with Indianapolis and even talk that the Texas uh, coat is uh, probably um, not long for the, the calendar the next two or three years might be it and then IndyCar seems as though it might be the, the primary um, user of the facility. Yeah, they're, they're going there next year of course IndyCar but it's a shame again because Miami was really shaping up to be the centerpiece for Liberty Media's Formula One and then talking about Las Vegas and Long Beach even if IndyCar loses their spot there um, you know all this talk yet nothing's really coming of it so again the US seems to be a harder market for F1 to breach and we would have thought that with Liberty Media with that Americanized focus that they would be able to finally crack it but it doesn't seem like it's the case anyway but still you know you don't you never know it still could happen in a couple of years time but you know we still we just got to wait with our breaths baited I think post-2020, again, is that crucial year where um, things might come a little bit easier. It seems as though the holding pattern, there's a bit more ambition you can see from Liberty this year. Things have ramped up a little and there's been maybe a few more notable misses. Not that they've been failing on those hits, but it probably seems until they have complete autonomy with the, the new agreement from 2021, um, things will fall into place a lot easier. Yeah, even that still seems a bit ambivalent, but as we get closer, I guess things will sort of um, fall into place, as you say, but it's hard not to be a little bit worried about what to expect, given that there's zero manufacturer interest now for 2021, talk about the rules even staying the same, yet, you know, there could be a radical visual overhaul aerodynamically again, so it's just, we've got to wait and see what happens, it's just all about the waiting game. Yeah, probably do hope that with the uh, interim aero changes for 2019, at least means we've got some pretty good racing and spectacle with overtaking for for the few seasons in that interim, rather than holding out for whatever it might be, 21 or dare we say 23, if uh, everyone wants to just continue the status quo. Yeah, exactly. So that's, I don't know, we, <laughs> we'll just have to wait and see, as we say. So yeah, uh, switching to two wheels quickly, and um, it's been a pretty dismal season for Yamaha and MotoGP. They're, it's their long, It's been their longest winless streak, which um, goes back to last year. The Dutch Grand Prix um, was the last time Valentino Rossi won, and since then, Yamaha have not won a Grand Prix, and uh, it's just going from bad to worse for them. And uh, Valentino himself this year, recently, has come out and said that perhaps um, Yamaha should look at potentially changing the um, the engine for next year. They've been using an inline four ever since they've been in the Grand Prix um, motorcycle class and he's calling to switch to a V4 engine so instead of the inline four that they've got and I guess tradition, history, Japanese teams, that's pretty key with those guys. Do they really want to switch? They probably don't, but I guess Rossi's just trying to put some pressure on them to, to do something about next season, given that this year's a write-off and it looks like they're not going to win a Grand Prix. Yeah, it's been a real anisorabilis, and for for Rossi, it's pro- probably up there with some of those years he had at Ducati. Even so, he's still maintained a pretty competitive standing um, there without any of that real success and for Yamaha if they're going to listen to somebody it's got to be a Valentino Rossi so as much as they have that tradition and, and honour and old habits uh, upholding them at a certain point if uh, they're going down a pathway and there's 
no sign of improvement. They've got to give it a go, and they can always return back to this I-4 philosophy down the track. But otherwise, it's impossible to see Marquez really any time the next two or three years being dethroned. Yeah, unless it was, of course, from Ducati, which, you know, the last few races, they've really been pretty strong and everything. And, of course, now next year, Jorge Lorenzo going to Honda to partner, um, uh, sorry, not Valentino, a partner, Mark Marquez. And we saw a bit of fireworks between those two over the weekend in Aragon, of course, with uh, Lorenzo blaming Marquez for him going off at turn one. So, you know, if that's the sort of friction that already is there, (laughs) imagine them two as teammates. Yeah, it's a matter of time, and you were mentioning earlier that um, that idea that uh, Lorenzo might be found on his haunches pretty quickly coming into um, the den of Marquez at a different establishment. They probably run things a bit differently to what he's used to from Yamaha and even Ducati, which is probably a bit more fiery, you could say, with that Italian passion. So I think that the next um, 6, 12 months will be very telling whether... Lorenzo's um, put himself on a, a downward scale, which has been the case probably since he moved from Yamaha with that slight resurgence this year. But as far as getting back into being legitimately a title contender, it's it's a very big year ahead for him. Big year ahead, but the thing is, I guess, but the differences between the Yamaha and the sorry the Ducati and the Honda is that the Honda is a bike that you can easily just roll out anywhere and anyone can be comfortable on it, whereas the Ducati you really have to work towards it. And given that Davizioso has been there for so long and he basically was there at the start of this revival going back to the post-Rossi era and when Luigi Deligno came into the team, um, I guess he's sort of formed that bike around him and I reckon he, along with Danilo Petrucci next year, should be pretty strong. But for Lorenzo to come from a different philosophy from Yamaha over Ducati, it would have been harder and that's what took him a year and a half to get the for the bike to suit his needs whereas I think on the Honda he could be a lot quicker straight out of the box but yeah it's for me it's going to be about the the rivalry and the teammate dynamic between he and uh, Marquez there could be a wall erected again like in the Yamaha days between Rossi and uh, Lorenzo I reckon a bit of fire and water there when you consider the two pretty contrasting personalities you've got uh, Lorenzo who's got the uh, um, probably the emotion of a, of a leaf compared to Marquez, who's like a little uh, cage monkey wanting to do acrobats whenever he's given the, the chance and the energy there is just so contagious. Basically, yeah. So I guess we'll leave it at that anyway for our motorsport segment because it's time to hit the post. And uh, I guess we've been looking forward to talking about this all day, um, the footy finals this weekend with um, the AFL and NRL, of course. Um, AFL probably a lot more significant certainly for one of us this year, given that uh, their team has stunned the reigning premiers to meet West Coast at the MCG. So Collingwood, I guess we didn't really expect them to, once they made it into the top, uh, into the playoffs or whatever, we didn't really, you didn't really expect them to go too far. But yeah, given that they had to play an extra week after losing to West Coast in the first round, um, they upset Richmond over the weekend in the prelim. Now they're in the big dance. I don't think anybody saw this coming from 12 months ago. It was uh, Armageddon time and lots of clean-outs there and a few people keeping jobs when the scepticism was there that they've just um, really changed nothing at all. But internally, clearly a lot of um, restructuring there to, to give other people their greater responsibilities and Nathan Buckley particularly there, he's, he's been able to delegate it a lot more and a lot more um, relief on the, the stress front. He can just focus on what he needs to do and just um, hone those uh, aspects over the years which really um, have misfired a lot of injuries though have probably um, overshadowed the true extent of of that climb but this year they've really again they've had injuries through the whole season and yet somehow they've defied it and they've gotten on a run with some players coming back just at the right time and um, yes they had an easy draw you might say earlier parts of the year but they had had to win them, and they did. Got the top four, double chance, and it's no easy feat, really, when you look at what they did. Two trips to Perth in three weeks, then winning ugly against GWS. That was a real danger game, and it looked for a long time there. They wouldn't get the job done, but for whatever reason, that short turnaround into playing Richmond, they were a completely transformed team, and certainly a 
Mason Cox in particular, he just had, had this complete about face in confidence and he played probably one of the best individual games AFL's seen in the 21st century and everyone was just taken aback. So I think that really a lot of people just um, still struggling to, to fathom the fact that Collingwood will be playing on the last day in September, regardless of what the outcome will be. USA, USA, as everyone's getting on the bandwagon. But um, we'll talk about Coxie in a second anyway. But I guess you got to say that the Pies finally have a chance to fully vindicate themselves under coach Buckley. And as you said before, the acrimony throughout his tenure, ever since Malthouse left and uh, Buckley's come in, the fact that they've not had success, they've had a lot of, I guess, some of the, a lot of their old guard sort of be swept away and then new players coming in being blooded and just not a lot of success to come out of that and all of a sudden and then last year really was the boiling point where it was like it's time to kick him out it's time to kick him out but the board and the team showed the faith and uh, retained him for another few years and whatnot and this year he's really rewarded the club and also the team as well given that they've really built this team that He's built this team himself. A lot of young players that have never played finals footy before finally had the chance to um, uh, play in the big game itself in the grand final. So, you know, you must, as a proper Collingwood fan, must feel that, you know, given that it's not a team of superstars that you've traded in from elsewhere, but it's a team that they've built up themselves and you would have watched progress over the years. It's probably more satisfying to see them win that way than having like, you know, being a Geelong or whatever and picking people from all over the place. It's been a long time coming and the hiccups there really have, have probably delayed that progress, but you can see this year that they'll be fully worthy um, of, of a premiership and people will always question that and say that happened overnight so something clearly uh, happened to, to fluke it but they've had the right people in place and just executing and they've got to know their, their roles and and backing themselves without that daily pressure that seemed to be the case probably since about 2015 it was just baying for blood seemingly on a, on a weekly basis and and now everyone after that review um, they've just been given that certainty and and you can see now that they're at a stage where probably being able to put a definitive line under that previous legacy with Mick Malthouse there and the way that set everything back probably that that contributed as equally as injuries and maybe some just other generally poor strategic decisions off the field and now the sole focus is on the football there and even if it isn't to be on Saturday I think the future at this point looks as though they're very much building to be in that top echelon for the uh, many years to come. Well, given that, you know, the last two years or whatever, the premiership winning teams have been those old teams or whatever, establishment teams or whatever. Western Bulldogs did it 2016, then Richmond did it last year, winning premierships after a long drought. Now, Collingwood, their drought probably hasn't been as long as those other two, but it seems like a lot has happened in that time and, you know, this is their chance to vindicate themselves given all the acrimony and the controversy around their coach and, of course, the team itself. So, you know, it it you know wouldn't be surprising at all if they won and given the conditions, it's a cold and wet forecast in Melbourne on Saturday. You know, could that potentially suit the home side? You were saying perhaps yes but Mason Cox maybe not really in that um in those wet conditions going to be his height's not going to suit it anyway but um I remember saying this when we were at the Queen's birthday game I said it as a joke at the time that you know Mason's going to be the Norm Smith medalist um at the end of the year and I now I'm sort of kicking myself as to oh this could potentially happen why didn't I put money on it back then it probably was a thousand to one the odds or something so could have had a big payday if it if it goes off yeah, things have progressed a little bit since then. Even uh, when they were on a roll at that point, no one foresaw them making it to the grand final. Even just being there in September was the objective. So um, that would have been whoever put money on any kind of situation to do with Collingwood on Saturday. They, they're going to walk away pretty well off if, if things do eventuate. So I think that it's just a testament to Cox himself, even though he's been a bit inconsistent when he's on he's really um reminiscent of some of the, the greats of all time and just that swagger that was evident last friday i think uh, very refreshing for the game to see someone who probably a uh, bit of a 
a duck out of water, however you want to say it, and he, he probably isn't a hundred percent aware of all of the the elements, but he does he, when he does his job right, it's just um, exhilarating for everyone to watch. Certainly got the uh, cult following now, doesn't he? Does uh, Mason Cox? So yeah, all the best to both the teams in the AFL, and I guess it's sort of reminiscent anyway Collingwood's run of how North Queensland, the North Queensland Cowboys were last season going into the finals too. So I certainly didn't expect them to make the grand final and given the injuries that they had you guys were lucky to at least get Collingwood were lucky this year to get their players back in time for the finals where North Queensland were pretty much depleted but yet still made it to the grand final beating teams like the Sydney Roosters Cronulla as well and um, ultimately we were decimated by the Melbourne Storm but still we made it to the grand final which was pretty it was a fairy tale run and I'm hoping that it's different for Collingwood this weekend given that we're in Melbourne we're Melbourneers. We want to see the Melbourne team win. Yeah, I guess it's not a sentiment too many share. It seems as though uh, a lot of people have tuned out because Collingwood's just a team to despise, regardless of of the whole narrative around it and the fact that they've um, for Buckley that is just the fact that he's been up against it and then within the season Collingwood's defied all of those odds. They are fully worthy of it, even as a um, a biased supporter. Uh, Looking at it objectively, they would be warranting the premiership if they get up. No one can doubt them. They'll always be the detractors. And and for West Coast as well, you'd have to hand it to them. If they win, they've been underrated always. That being on the other side of the nullable, you can always say that they're away from the scrutiny, but not a lot of people give them the credit there. And um, for them to get up, um, they really just go about it in a... A great way so whoever does prevail it's not as though oh they're not richmond so clearly they just lucked into it oh well it's daniel ricardo's team as well so you'd hope for them uh, that's one reason for them to win but yeah we're certainly tipping the pies on this one as well so we'll switch now codes to the nrl too and melbourne storm were the premiers last year they find themselves in back-to-back grand finals and they're going to be meeting the Sydney Roosters for the first time at ANZ Stadium. So the first time these two have been in a grand final together. Two of the best teams, you could say, in the past decade or decade and a half in the NRL. Um, and I guess there's been a lot of controversy, a lot of build-up this week, given the news around Billy Slater. And they're actually going to have him for the final game after the judiciary declared him not guilty for that shoulder charge on um, Sir Saifeki in that prelim against the Sharks so yeah that's going to be a big boost for Melbourne chances to go back to back but just the emotion too that it's Billy Slater's final game and he'd want to go out as a winner and not have to have watched the game from the sideline because he had to do that in 2016 of course where he missed that grand final due to that shoulder injury that he had and I guess he was probably that missing piece in the 2016 final where Melbourne could have beaten Cronulla if they had the uh, the wish of Billy Slater on the team. You can only hope he hasn't played his grand final with that off-field um, spectacle for really since the Friday night. It was all in um, preparing that defence and now um, they've already returned to to um, Sydney as a group there so he hasn't had much time where he can just be himself at home at all not an ideal preparation but at least he will be there and and you just hope the storm do rally to give him the fitting send-off and it will just be the shame if uh, Cronk doesn't Cooper Cronk doesn't get up that he's not there to farewell his great mate regardless of the scoreline because they're, they're both gladiators and go go way back from either and so you do wonder for Kronk how desperate he will be, whether he'll put himself well and beyond to the point where he might do some long-term damage. You just don't know. We've seen in the past, is it Paul Gallon had a similar injury and he missed out, didn't he? A couple yeah, of well, last, well, last week, sorry, Paul Gallon, well, in the, the week before, uh, injured his rotator cuff and then they're saying that it, you know, was probably not as significant as what Kronk's done yet. You know, it was significant enough for him to miss the prelim against Melbourne last week so yeah Kronk probably doing a lot more damage and chances are that yeah he won't be able to play but you know the fairy tale meeting like who would have picked it that um, Kronk leaves Melbourne goes to the Roosters and then he gets to square off against his old his old friends in Billy Slater and um, Cameron Smith given that they've had a bit of falling out to since uh, Kronk's decision so you know just for the spectacle, it would be nice to see those guys on the field together um, playing one another. But yeah, you know, it 
you know, given uh, Kronk not being there for the Roosters and they're also missing Dylan Napper still because of that um, suspension or whatever, uh, yeah, you'd think that Storm at full strength will probably outdo the Roosters, but Roosters have been really strong in defence and everything. They get Latrell Mitchell back as well, which is going to be key for them this weekend. Um, he was out suspended for a couple of games too for a crusher tackle, so it's really hard to pick between the two, but if I had to pick one, it would have to be Melbourne. That would be defying history since the um, reunited NRL I guess from 20, uh, was it 1997 onwards, you've got to go back to when it was the ARL, whatever it was, New South Wales Rugby League that we had back-to-back winners there. So that would be 25 years. Yeah, 25 years ago that we had back-to-back premiers. Would, so. would, have, would have been the Broncos back then. They won about six of them in the 90s. So the Storm, as much as they've been dominant, they've never been able to string together successive titles. So that would probably put them, uh, especially after the way they started this decade with that um, acrimony of the salary cap um, debacle there to win. This would be, what, four flags in seven seasons plus the couple that they, they lost from last decade. That'd be ridiculous. That'd be something like six flags when you include those in 12 years. That's going to have to go down as an all-time great achievement. Yeah, and given that you've had the likes of Cameron Smith, Billy Slater, and then up until this, of course, last year, Cooper Cronk there, and under all under Coach Bellamy as well. So, you know, it's a, it's really a dynasty that they're building. And, you know, I'm just impressed with Melbourne that they've done it all year, been successful without actually having a, a permanent halfback there. So ever since Cronk left, of course, they've sort of chopped and changed between Brodie Croft, Jerome Hughes, Riley Jacks. So uh, Brodie Croft's been named as number seven for this weekend for the grand final. But, you know, it wouldn't be surprised if you have someone like a Jerome Hughes or Riley Jacks pop up and play in that position for a period of time as well. And you'd expect them really to probably go somewhere they're familiar with in terms of positions. You're not going to see too many drastic changes short of necessary inclusions. And the Roosters probably, again, they're similar enough to West Coast, even though we're in the... um, well, they're in the fishbowl in Sydney, whereas Melbourne, I guess, we're the ones who are the out-of-towners when it comes to, to NRL, but probably the Roosters do deserve a bit more credit there, and they did pinch that minor premiership, so uh, it'd be folly to dismiss them. Yeah, exactly, and um, I guess because they're missing Kronk, that could be a big thing, but, you know, they they spent a lot of bucks, I guess, this year bringing... Cooper Cronk and also James Tedesco over from the Tigers to strengthen the team and Trent Robinson been given that faith or whatever to bring another premiership to the Roosters. It's been a long time and, you know, um, I guess if they fall short this year, you could probably pin it on Cooper Cronk not being present. But at the same time, they've got the likes of Tedesco there, Latrell Mitchell's back, Boyd Corner, Jake Friend, their two co-captains. And of course, um, you know, Blake Ferguson's been in form as well, in which will be his final game for the Roosters too before he goes to Parramatta. So, you know, it's going to be a, it's going to be a great contest and I really can't wait for that one as well as the AFL come uh, Saturday. Bit of a smorgasbord there, particularly that that Sunday uh, seven o'clock kickoff, leading almost immediately into the the Russian Grand Prix. So we'll be having yeah, some split the, duties. As we said at the top of the podcast, the racing almost seems secondary this week, and, and it's all as about it will for F one in seven days later when it's going to be all eyes on Bathurst and your forced duties for the blog. Somehow, reluctantly, you'll have to shun Bathurst under the secondary screen. Exactly. For, so what, third, fourth up, year in a row. Exactly. So up until then, you know, thanks for tuning in today. Hopefully. We've got a lot to talk about next week, of course, with the Russian Grand Prix, the footy outcome, and previewing the Bathurst 1000. This is why October is such a good month. You know, daylight savings, a lot of sport, and the sunshine comes back. It's just, it's all happening. So thanks very much for tuning in this time, and we'll see you next week. Till then, go 